being is can, or can be very intimidating at times. But we speak and preach and listen because it's the command of God for our edification. So let's read Acts chapter 2, or sorry, Acts 4, uh, starting in, in verse 1. The scripture says, as they, Luke is picking up the, the story again where, where we left off, uh, a man has been healed. Uh, Peter has, has preached the implications of that healing to, to the crowd. So the scripture says, as they, that's Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word, and we thank you that your, good, your word is good and clear and pure and speaks to us at the point of our need, and we can understand it. Lord, we thank you for that great doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, of the priesthood of all believers and the clarity of Scripture, and we know that we can come and hear your word, and Lord, we feel and know its implications. And yet, Father, you have ordained, you have built into your church that one should proclaim it and explain it and expound on it. Father, I pray that as we come to this word that you would ca cause us, Father, to cast our sins aside. Uh, for myself, I ask, because my sins are many, and they cause a rift between you and I, Lord. And I ask for my brothers and sisters because their sins 
Known and unknown are many. And we do not desire to have our prayers and our our desire to please you hindered by the sin which so easily entangles. And so we pray, Father, that we would cast it aside this morning, repenting of it, coming to you and asking you to feed us, for you are good. Lord, we think of the Saramachan people of Suriname, Lord, 28,000 people, a city smaller than Salisbury in, in population, these people. And we ask that you would reach them by your grace and for your glory. They have your word, but they do not follow it, perhaps much like our people here in the United States. Father, we pray that as we, as we come to hear this word, that you would drive it home, that you would help us to, to chew the meat and to spit out the bones which are introduced by human wisdom and to, to feed purely on that which is good and then to take that word and having heard it to embody it to live it out that others might know and hear the gospel of Jesus Lord we thank you for your son Jesus who makes it possible to know you and to be fellowship to be in fellowship with you and who takes away all of our sins and makes it possible for us to call ourselves the righteous children of God being forgiven with a forgiveness from you and not one of our own creation. We come before you as your children. We ask you to teach us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, my goal this morning, um, not pre-planned and determined, but based purely on the text, is to make everyone just a little bit angry. Uh, we are in the, um, the election season. We're in the midst of a political cycle, and uh, I am mindful of the two things that you're not supposed to discuss with people, with your friends, that is politics and religion, and we are going to talk about both of them this morning. Um, it has been said that Hitler's favorite Bible verse was this one in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Perhaps you're familiar with the famous scene from the book The Hiding Place where Corrie ten Boom, having been accused of harboring Jewish people who have been uh, determined to be criminals against the state by the Nazi regime, she is being uh, interrogated, and the German authority asks her this question, does it not say in your book to obey the government? And she is silent before him. This passage introduces a, a problem into perhaps our American ideology and our political theology. There's another equally complicated passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, that says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, having read those statements, it is true that pastors, theologians, Christians, presidents, dictators have their interpretations. And I believe that these verses cause genuine struggle for Christians today when we look at our nation and our, our, our policies. We think about taxation. We think about rampant immorality in our culture. We look at the legalized institution of abortion. And what we hear the Scripture saying is, submit, submit, submit to the governing authorities. Today, you may, may not know this, is what many are calling Speak Up Sunday or Pulpit Freedom Sunday, 
across the United States. Many pastors uh, following the, um, the encouragement of, of, a, of a nonprofit group will speak about the issues and, and tell people the positions of both political candidates in this election cycle, and then they will instruct their congregations how they feel they should vote. They'll then take those sermons and send them to the IRS, inviting an audit so that they can perhaps challenge the legality of the rules of the tax code that say that churches should not be involved in electioneering because they believe that their churches are shackled by the tax code. I have, I have some thoughts about this. It just so happens that God, in his sovereignty and no design of my own, uh, caused this day and this text to coincide, and, and I believe that is a great opportunity to hear the Word of God speak in an unchained way to God's people. Did something just happen to the lights? Okay. Wow. I was like, is that a message or something? It just got really, like, warm in here, um, lighting-wise. Anyway, that was interesting. Um, notice the setting of, of the story that is before us this morning. When I say story, I do not mean to, uh, to, to hint that there is any non-historicity to this. I believe that this happened exactly as it says in the scripture, but it is nevertheless a story, and it has a setting and a plot and a conclusion, because that's the way stories work. It says that as Peter and John, who had just healed a man who was born lame, they, they healed him, and then the people gathered and marveled, and, and Peter preached the gospel to them. As he was speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. This is like one of those movie scenes where, where they've, they've preached the gospel, and they look up, and their enemies are there. Imagine them all like brandishing weapons, like in a modern movie. That's what it would look like. It's this threatening scene. And so uh, they, they come upon them, and they are displeased. They are irritated because... Peter and John are teaching the people. Notice it says that they were irritated that they were teaching the people, not just that, but also that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What you might not know is that the Sadducees were opposed to a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the good people. They were the, the people of the people. They were the Bible-believing good guys. They loved the scriptures. They believed every word of them. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They were, they were religiously liberal. They took what they liked from the scripture and left what they did not like behind. They had a, a form of godliness, but they denied its power. It says that they arrested them and they put them into custody until the next day. Book them on causing a disturbance in the temple, teaching something that we don't like, because it was already evening. They would hear them the next business day. They charged them for teaching. I believe that one of the fundamental principles of this nation that makes it one of the greatest nations on this planet, I would say, from my own personal perspective, the greatest nation that has ever existed on earth, I thank God that I was born in America and I love my country. One of the greatest blessings of this land is that we have freedom to speak and to think. And we violate that fundamental principle whenever we criminalize the content of thought. This is not a new problem. It's not just cropped up in the last 200 some odd years in America. Look at the founding of the church. We see that the criminalization of free thought, the binding of the conscience of the people, the, the saying that certain things cannot be said goes back to the beginning. As Peter proclaims the truth, the religious authorities say, you cannot say that. I grew up in a, a pretty sheltered home, a good family. I went to Kutztown University in 1992 and walked onto campus in the fall semester and knew that I was in another world. There was a shortcut on, on the way 
to, um, to one of my classes and I would pass through this building and as I walked through the building there was a sign over the University Women's Center, okay? And this is how the word women was spelled, W-O-M-Y-N. And being, you know, a young kid, I'm like, you spelled that word wrong. And they were saying, no, no, we spell it with a Y because we don't want the word men in women. And I thought, I have walked into another world. I learned that the only political and religious idea which was not permissible was anything that I had learned as a white Protestant male. <laughs> and everything seemed to be on the table and open for discussion, all kinds of intellectual ideas except those things that smacked of establishment and truth. And so Christianity was off limits. Patriotism seemed to be off limits. Talking about Jesus was off limits. It was criminal talk. I can imagine if you found yourself in this situation, whether male or female, whether you are like me, if you are a white guy, or you are any other color, whether you are a born and bred Protestant or a later convert to Christianity, perhaps you have sat in a setting and you have shared your opinion about who Jesus is or, or what truth is, and you have felt like what you are, are saying is, has crossed over the bounds. It is not a new idea that information is power. Controlling language and controlling what can and cannot be said is power, and it always has been. And so the religious leaders are irritated that someone has risen up and walked into their temple and has taught something that they disagree with, and they throw Peter and John in jail. And though they have detained Peter and John, we can echo the thought of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, where Peter, or rather Paul, says, Though I am jailed, the word of God is not bound. Notice what it says in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Peter and John's mission was to be channels. They spoke God's word in God's time, in God's way, and the truth was released and the people heard it and they believed. The church grew without Peter and John there. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. It was 3,000 when we last had an update on the number of the church and now it has grown to five. This is not including women and children. This is just men at this point. I've heard a Someone say that the church in China prays this way. Lord, let the persecution of the church lighten up just a bit that we might be free to preach the word of God. But do not give us as much freedom as the church in America that we might not become like them. A little bit of suffering is good for the church. It gives some value to what we believe if we're willing to actually stand up for it. Uh, I believe it's the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who said, where everyone is a Christian, no one is a Christian. Naming the name of Christ brought with it persecution. The book of Timothy says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Tertullian said early on in the history of the church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If persecution comes against Christ in this country in a, in a greater way than it already has, than just kind of the social outcast kind of, of, of idea, if you're a Christian, and, and I believe the heat is turning up, it will not lead to the downfall of the church. Because no one can crush the truth of this book or the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one can stop it. No one has been successful. 
I heard the story about a, a pastor in Romania named Joseph San, who under persecution was told that the state was going to kill him. And he said back to the, the man who was interrogating him, who was threatening his life, this is what he said, this is back in the early 80s. I, I heard him give this message live in, in the year 2000. He said, I did not want to die. That was not my desire. I, I did not want to make my wife a widow or to abandon my children. But I realized that when you follow Jesus, you give up your life. And so I told this man, I said, go ahead and kill me. You cannot take from me what I am willing to give up. But know this, that my sermons have been written down and they have been taped and they are being distributed. And if you kill me, you will validate everything I have said and more and more people will listen to my tapes. And he said, they let me go and did not kill me because they knew that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This, what's going on here, the being jailed and being persecuted is just a hint of the suffering that will come on the church. It will get worse in this book. And I believe it will get worse in this country just as it has everywhere else in the world. We do not have it as nearly as bad as some Christians in some places of the world today, but that's a story for another sermon. Notice the trial that goes on here. Starting in verse 5, it says, On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all of the high priestly fam family. When they'd set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Imagine this scene. Peter and John, before the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the people, the 70, that's this group. They are the religious authorities. Remember, and, and perhaps try to feel the, the sense of fear and the adrenaline rush that Peter must have been experiencing. Just weeks ago, Peter had stood very close to this place, or a place just like it, but yet he had, he had stood outside by a charcoal fire, and he had looked in, as Jesus himself stood before this crowd, these men, and was tried and sentenced and condemned. And now Peter is not out by the fire, hiding and warming himself. He is standing in front of them, and he knows that two crosses could be in their future. By what power or by what name did you do this? Do you remember how it starts in the Gospel of Luke? Luke chapter 20, verse 2, where the Sadducees come to Jesus as he is clearing out the temple and they say, by what authority do you do this? And that is the, the match that begins the fire that leads to Jesus' death on the cross. Don't let anybody tell you, though, that he was a victim because he answered with boldness and with clarity and knew exactly what he was doing. They ask him the question, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now remember where Peter has been. He has been teaching and he has been preaching and the church has been growing and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so Peter has been soaking in the reality and the truth of the word of God, and he's been ministering it and preaching the gospel over and over and over again. Now, feel the goodness of the Spirit here. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, verse 12. After his great disputation with the religious authorities, this is what Jesus teaches the church. He says, he's talking about persecution and destruction that will come upon Jerusalem. He says, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. By what power or what name did you do this? This, Jesus says in Luke 21, verse 13, I'm just reading on, not twisting or changing anything. It's right there in the scriptures. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Jesus is not teaching them here that this is just a getaway free card. He's teaching them that that their life cannot be taken from them even though their body dies. They will endure in faith and persevere through the trial and they will gain their eternal life by persevering. And all true believers persevere to the end. So don't introduce any loss of salvation fears. I've talked about that quite a bit. Come back to that or email me. So Peter is standing there. By what name or what power did you do this? And it says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, notice that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does the Holy Spirit fill us? When does he fill us? For what purpose does he fill us? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, The Holy Spirit does not fill us so we can do this and be like, I love you, God. The Holy Spirit fills us for the purpose of ministry. This isn't the indwelling, the the presence of God in us. We get that as at salvation. We're sealed for the last day. We will persevere. But we are filled with the Spirit and with power for the purpose of witness and testimony. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter said, rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed, what Peter is saying here is, I know your game. You've got me here because you don't like what I'm teaching. But if you're asking this question, I will respect you and I will answer your question. If we're being examined concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by how he was healed, by what means he has been healed, let it be known to you and to everyone who wants to know that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man you crucified, but God raised from the dead, by him he's standing before you well. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, you don't like the doctrine of the resurrection, but you want to know by what power? Let everybody know. We'll tell everybody. It's by Jesus, by his name, that that this crippled man was healed and he is now walking. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. It's almost as if Peter, Peter who is always bold and who always seems to speak his mind, now filled with the power of the Spirit, unafraid of those who cannot take his life, because as Paul teaches in the book of Colossians, he has died and his life is hidden with Christ in God and no man can take it from him. He says, you want to know about my doctrine? You want to know how I was the means through which God healed this man? I will tell you, don't quibble with my doctrine. You killed him. God raised him up. His power raised him. And now he is the cornerstone of all that God is doing in the world. And you rejected him. You are the leaders, the shepherds of the people. Notice what Peter says. He says, the stone that was rejected by you, by the shepherds, by the builders, has now become the cornerstone. Peter is standing before authorities those who have the power to take his life, and he is rebuking their moral failure and calling them to account to God. It's more than just describing that Jesus is the foundation, the the beginning of of Christianity, though. Listen to what he he says. He says that that Jesus being the cornerstone or being the capstone is is the past and the future of all that God is doing. Listen how he describes it in in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this to the church, as you come to him, to Jesus, as you come to him, he's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're part of what God is building, is what Peter's saying. You're a stone built on Jesus, the stone. Verse 6 of 
First Peter chapter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter says, you don't like our doctrine of resurrection, religious authoritative people. You've called us, jailed us, and asked us, we're going to tell you the message and we're going to call you to account. Peter is a different man because of the gospel and the indwelling spirit. Weeks ago, he denied and cursed and fled for his life. Now he is unbound and does not care and speaks the truth with abandon in front of these people. He says, we healed him through Jesus, and Jesus is the cornerstone of all that God is doing. You don't like the fact that we're talking about the resurrection? You're going to love this. This is what he says in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You don't like the resurrection and you're pursuing an alternate truth? Guess what? There are no alternate truths. There is one truth. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is the truth. And his name is Jesus. And there is no one else who can save people. There is no other name by which men can be saved. This is language that Peter is lifting up from the book of Isaiah. Listen to how, God, how, how, how Isaiah describes God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Me. I'm not me. Him. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them, he's talking about false gods, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, speaking to, my, to his people, fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. Wow. What are the apostles saying here when they say there's salvation in no one else? What are they saying about who Jesus is? You're looking for an argument of Jesus' identity and divinity. It's right there. I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. They called Jesus Lord and Savior. Back to Isaiah 43. 12. That's not part of the sermon. I declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work. Who can turn it back? This is what Peter is saying to the religious authorities as they are inquiring about how he did this. He says, we serve the God of heaven and earth. We serve the Jesus who raised and, this, this, and healed this man. And he is the true authority. The God who works and no one can deliver or turn back what he is doing. The good news of the gospel is this. That Jesus is the servant of God who accomplished salvation for us. He opens the door to heaven. He throws the doors of heaven wide with his saving death. He and his Father and the Holy Spirit appoint men to preach this good news that God is a just God, but he is a God who saves. This door, no other door. The world says there are many paths that lead to heaven. That is not what the Bible says. And the world rightly condemns those Christians who claim to be Christians and then they make it up as they go along or they choose to adjust this or tweak that because it offends them and they remake Christ in their own image so that they can serve and worship a God of their own choosing. Jesus said, 
I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus blazes a path to heaven in his own blood, and he is the only path and the only way. There is no other door. There is no other Savior. So let me just speak for a moment about the folly of Pulpit Freedom Sunday. I believe in the doctrine of pulpit freedom. I believe the the pulpit should be free. The elders of this church have never said, don't say this, don't say that. They have said, preach God's word and do it. Just do it. This pulpit is free. No one tells me what to preach or to say. It comes from this book and from the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And this is a great Protestant and a valuable doctrine, the idea of pulpit freedom. But many pastors today will defy the government, hoping they will be audited so that they can bring a suit in court. And what they're going to do is they're going to outline the differences between two candidates from the pulpit and say, vote for Mitt Romney. That's what they're going to do. And maybe some of them will say, oh, and by the way, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can do that this way. And I think that is a farce and a waste of the pulpit. In my opinion, it is ridiculous that any church would incorporate for tax exemption according to the rules of the 501c3 status and go before the government and say, we will obey your rules in order that we might be tax-free and then break those rules. If that church chooses, they can disincorporate and they can still issue statements which are valid before the federal government for tax freedom so that you can deduct your gifts from, to the church from your taxes. You don't need to be incorporated to be tax exempt. Go ahead, read the law. It's in really tiny print behind all the big print that says it's really good to be incorporated. It's there. Churches are naturally tax-exempt, read the law. Many people will let politics get in the way of the gospel. Now, if you are my friend on Facebook or you have had any like out-of-the-pulpit conversation with me about politics, you know I am very opinionated. But I like people, and people who are not like me need the gospel too. I am pro-life. I am pro-defense, I'm pro-Israel to a point, I am pro-troops, I love Ronald Reagan, I love George Bush after 9-11, it was a tough time, we made some mistakes, but this is my policy at this church, and it's a policy the elders have echoed, there are no political signs here. We will not endorse a political candidate and tell the rest of the country to go away. The gospel reigns here. Jesus is king here. This is common ground. I've got something else to say about Pulpit Freedom Sunday. We'll come back in just a second, because I'm not, I'm not done talking about politics yet. Notice the sentence that's handed down. They have been very bold in the face of religious authority. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. They recognized that they'd been with Jesus. They're like, they speak with authority and power like he did. But seeing the man who was healed beside them They had nothing to say in opposition. The quality, the character of these men's lives and their teaching and their works were evident and the authorities could say nothing against them. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? A notable sign's been performed through them that's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, and they told them, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Let me just point something out here. They said by their own confession... And I believe that the reason that we know what happened in that private council is because Joseph of Arimathea is there and Nicodemus is there and they heard and they could have reported back and and, and spoken to Luke and to other witnesses. They've said that a sign took place, but they did not like it. 
to admit that you cannot refute the truth of Christianity and that therefore you'll accept it because you believe it's true is not enough. You need to love the gospel. It needs to be at the center of your life. There are many people who have walked an aisle in the church and they've done some religious things to earn some points before God. They refuse to live in subjection to God's word, to rejoice in it, to identify that Jesus is the only Savior and to exult in all about him. And I would say this, it is not enough. It's not enough to see the work of God before you. You've got to embrace it and love it. That's what it means to be saved. Confess with your mouth, yes, but believe in your heart. So they say, be silent. Speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 19, their reply. Will you agree to the terms of your sentence? It says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to God, you must judge. You want us to be quiet? Okay. Think about it. You're asking us to not listen to God, but to listen to you. You figure that out. All right? You come up with your answer. But here's our answer. Verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. The truth that we have encountered, the truth of the resurrected Christ his death on the cross on our behalf and, and what he is doing through us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the church, that changes things for us. It says, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I believe in the brilliance and the truth of, of pulpit freedom, and I think it comes from places like this, where the preacher, the speaker, out in public says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Someone says, don't say that, you can't say that, that's not politically correct, that will lose you income, that will send people away, that won't be friendly to, to visitors. I say this, if the scriptures say it, we must proclaim it or we deny the truth. And let me just address one idea. The scriptures say that we are to submit to every governing authority. I fully affirm that. Romans 13, 1 Peter. That's the truth. But now let me, let me say this. I believe very similar things about the way that submission works in marriage, the way that submission, the submission of the son works to the father, the way that you as the congregation are called to submit to church leadership. I believe they all function very similar in the way that we are called to submit to the state. So I say this to you. Submit to the laws that do not involve the rights of God. Drive the speed limit, obey traffic lights, obey the civil code. If these passages were not in Scripture, Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, we might be tempted to say, Jesus is my king and I don't need to listen to any man. No, you do. You do. But at the same time, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In, in a statement about um, husbands and wives, in, in terms of, of the, the wife's role in submitting to her husband's leadership, there's a, a statement I love. I love this statement. It says, submission does not give any person cover ever to ask another to sin. You are free in that sense. Submission does not mean I did what I was told. Jesus in submitting to the Father. The Father cannot say, do this sinful thing. Not that that would ever happen. The Son would have said no. If, if church leaders say to you, submit, and then they tell you to do a wicked, sinful thing, it is your obligation as Christians under the authority of God to say no. Parents should never use the idea that children should obey them based on the scriptures 
to encourage their children to sin. And neither should the state. Peter says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 5.29 says this. We'll see this later as we move through Acts. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Jesus, in preaching, in, again, Luke chapter 20, when it all kind of gets set off, he's asked whether or not they should pay taxes. He says, show me a coin whose likeness and inscription does it have. They say, Caesar's. He says to them, render the things to Caesar that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We are not called ever to render that which is God's to men. But we are called to render to the state, to the government, what is the state's. Point out two more examples, and then we're going to bring this to a close. John the Baptist was defiant to the state, and he was defiant in a way that many in our culture would consider impolite. Luke chapter 3, verse 18, it says, With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. He preached good news, the the pre-gospel of the coming of the Son. Jesus had not died yet. John did not know of his death. He would question Jesus' death. He did not understand it, but he preached good news. He is a, whatever he understands about the gospel preacher. Verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. John was persecuted by Herod. Why? Because John pointed out Herod's sin. He pointed it out to him. You have sinned, he told him. In the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 21, King Ahab wants a man named Naboth's vineyard. Naboth will not sell the vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, conspires to have the land taken away from him. The man is denounced as a criminal, killed, and Ahab takes possession. And Elijah goes to him and says, have you killed and take possession? Taken possession? Ahab acknowledges this. God tells him, you shall say to him, thus says the Lord in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will lick up your own blood, Ahab. Ahab repented, and God relented. That brings us down to the question of pulpit freedom and the coming election. I will say this. Our governor and the state house have affirmed that gay marriage should be legal. Now, I have compassion for the homosexual community. I believe this is an issue that many struggle with and, and struggle legitimately with. I do not want anything that I say to be to appear as unloving. But we believe as Christians that this is against the created will of God. Beyond just God's desire for individuals, because we do not believe that the individual conscience should be bound by the consciences of others, people must come to the truth on their own terms and submit to it of their own free will. We are not, is, this is not Islam, this is Christianity. Affirming gay marriage in our culture binds the hearts and the voices of anyone in the public sector. If you are a Christian and a school teacher, you will not be able legally to voice an opinion to the contrary. The law may say that you can, but it will not last. There are provisions in this law that says it will not bind on houses of worship, but if you look no further than Canada, you will see that pastors have been jailed for hate speech for saying that 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 homosexuality is not consistent with God's will. If our state continues in this direction, they will criminalize moral resistance. And so we have an opportunity to say no. We will not allow you to redefine the word marriage. Our state is asking in this election if we will expand the powers and reach of the casino system. Now, we, the state is asking this knowing that for every dollar the state takes in in gambling revenue, it will spend six dealing with gambling addiction. These are the figures from other states. 
And, and also, knowing that casinos increase the amount of organized crime. You need to look no farther than in my home state, Atlantic City, which was once a very nice place to go. It is now a giant mess. Lotteries tend to be monopolies. Gambling takes advantage of the hopes of the poor and results in the redistribution of the wealth of the poor. They, the state knows that. And we also know in our hearts the truth of 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. We have an opportunity to say no. We will not render to the state that which is God's. Our president has stated his position towards life and towards the Roe v. Wade decision this way. This is, I believe, 2009. We are reminded, he said this on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, we are reminded that this decision, the Roe v. Wade decision, not only protects women's health and reproductive freedom, but stands for a broader principle that government should not intrude on our most private family matters, to which I believe Christians can feel free to say you are not protecting women's rights or freedom. You are violating women's rights and freedom when we destroy 500,000 little women every year. This is the destruction of freedom for those who cannot speak up for themselves. We can say that it's a private family matter, but it is to our shame and to our guilt that we have allowed this to go on since 1973. And our president would have it remain legal. Our president has also said, and I believe his larger policies reflect this truth. He just said recently this past week that the future must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. The future, he said, must not belong to those who slander the prophet of Islam. Then he said, but to be credible, those who condemn that slander, and I say this to his credit, but I think he misses the point, those who condemn that slander must also condemn the hate we see in the images of Jesus Christ that are desecrated, or churches that are destroyed, or the Holocaust that is denied. To which I say, we do not want our images protected. We want the freedom to speak the truth of the gospel without impediment, because that is what the law says. We don't want our images protected. We want our freedom to raise our families and to speak our minds and hearts and to worship God as we see fit. The Constitution, the law which is external to any man in this country, says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble. We can say no. I think it is small-minded to look to Mitt Romney as our savior at the same time. We ought to pray for these men. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Timothy 1.1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What does a peaceful and quiet life lead to? Opportunities to proclaim the gospel. That's what we desire. That ought to be what we pray for. We miss the point if on election day our guy wins and we say God will again bless 
America, and I say for people on either side of the aisle, because, because salvation does not come through men, it comes through God. We're lost if we breathe a sigh of relief on election day and we fade back into despair or, or into relaxation and we think that the God's way has won, freedom has prevailed. Our battle goes on no matter who is in presidential office. We close with this. Galatians 5.1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The slavery that I think would work in this passage as relevant to us is not political slavery, but a bondage to our own pleasures and our own desires and our own freedom. That we, being free, see no value in freedom. We choose instead to spend it on football or movies or television or perfecting our golf game or collecting seashells. Instead of living lives that are sold out to the glory of God. Do not, Paul says, use your opportunity. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let your freedom be an opportunity for service. I'm just going to close in prayer. Hopefully I have achieved my goal. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. You know who I'm voting for if you know me. But you also know how I feel about the office of president. He is not my savior, no matter who he is. Jesus is our savior. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear this word. Lord, no matter what comes, whether we are raptured and delivered from any persecution, whether we go through a time of great tribulation in this country when the day of the Lord comes upon this nation and we are judged for our many sins. For, Lord, we are an idolatrous people. We as a nation, we value our stomachs. We value our freedom to choose and our freedom of speech. We say all kinds of ridiculous, disgusting, God-denying, immoral things. We fill the, the air with filth. We deserve your judgment. Lord, we thank you that this country was built and I believe still consists largely of people who believe that you are a loving and forgiving God. May we not come to the table thinking that we are the people, that we are exempt from hardship. May we face struggle and pain and persecution knowing that you are in control and that you have our lives in your hand and no one can pry your hand open and take it away. We are free. And so, Lord, we believe that we are free to speak our minds. We are free to petition those in authority over us. Lord, we ought to give respect where respect is due and to obey the laws. But we will not submit where your laws point out difference. And we will pursue the higher path. Lord, I pray that we would use that freedom not as an opportunity to be bold or obnoxious or ridiculous or to, to, to heap scorn on anyone whom we do not think has our best interests in mind. Instead, we ought to give respect where respect is due to the office as well as to one who is created in the image of God. Lord, I pray for both Barack Obama and for Mitt Romney, both of whom have enormous pressure on them. And you have a job, I believe, that perhaps has grown too big for one man who live in times where Twitter users and Facebook posters and thousands of other different means of communication heap tremendous pressure on their office. We pray for them. They are created in your image. I believe they both need your word and they need to understand it in a powerful, life-changing, saving way. For I believe they are both far from you. So we pray that you'd accomplish your great work in them, Lord. 
May we, as conscience demands and as Scripture demands, have the boldness to disagree and to preach and proclaim the truth, Lord, not for our own desires to feed our flesh, but in order to serve others in love and ultimately to serve the cause of the gospel in Jesus Christ throughout the nations. Because you, Lord, are the only Savior. You know of no other, so neither do we. We thank you and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.